0: No, it's n- it's not. Yes, it it it's not the same with I Led Zeppelin.
1: Again, he again because he loved that music. And look, nobody's saying a person it. can't
0: play blues. That's not the argument here. Well
1: to say that they're stealing it from somebody else is to
0: suggest essentially that Don't censor me, baby. Welcome back, Arts Fuseknicks. I hope you've been out there doing our bidding. We really, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we would love for you guys to do our bidding.
1: We haven't really indicated necessarily what our bidding is at this particular moment, other than one very specific thing.
0: I mean, I've been doing subliminal messaging since, <laughs> since day one. <laughs>
1: I've been waiting for people to join the air force like this entire time. I don't know why anyone hasn't taken me up on Seriously, it.
0: Seriously, go get your wings, everybody.
1: Um, no, but we would love for you guys to contribute monthly. You don't have to give a lot. Five dollars a month, five to six dollars a month. If, if we get enough people doing that, the Arts Look, Fuse can the hire difference. all kinds of people. Five
0: fifty.
1: Yeah, even five dollars and fifty cents a month. Honestly, I mean, we we could use uh, a full time web editor. We could use a full time copy editor. We could use uh, a full time graphics editor. I mean, this is the kind of thing where you know the Arts Fuse can't do everything by itself. And if you guys like what we do, we try really hard to please you, to give you interesting stuff, to write well, and to give you guys an exposure to musicians and movies and dance productions and books that you otherwise might not get any exposure to if you just follow the mainstream media. And so, since we're
0: independent, we want to stand on the shoulders of the giants, and that's you. So that's enough business. That's enough us begging and and groveling. But if you want to help us out, you can go to our Patreon or you can just go to the Arts Fuse and donate right to the magazine. But if you donate to the Patreon, it tells my boss that it looks like I know what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, which is pretty important. We have, I think, three donors right now. Do we go up to more?
0: We have the, a, a trinity of donors.
1: Yes, yes. yes.
0: We have uh, the father, son, and Miss Boudreau.
1: Yes, we do. Shout out to Dorothy Boudreaux, by the way.
0: Dorothy Boudreaux, if you're listening. We love you. I'm sorry for swearing so much.
1: Oh, Dorothy loves swears. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah. But she hates drugs. <laughs> well, we don't.
0: it's a good thing we don't do drugs. It's a
1: good thing we don't do any drugs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, for Thanksgiving, for the holiday season, you can, uh, you can let us know how much you give thanks in the form of dollars. So we've got a doozy for you.
1: We've got a lot going on right now.
0: We've got a lot going on. I'm just going to rifle through a few of the things that are just up on the fuse right now, unless Matt wants to start with anything. Anything uh, no, interesting or Luke? cool going on in your life or anything like that? Silence. Fire
1: away, Lucas.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The American Repertory Theater. Robert Israel thinks extraordinary. It's not so extraordinary. Uh, It's a play that's... It's not even a play. It's like a review that's going on at the American Repertory Theater that is basically just doing what we just tried to do, which was ask you guys for money. They rifle through a bunch of plays and musicals and stuff that they've put on, which is a great... It's a great theater, and they do good stuff, and we're really appreciative of some of the things that they put on. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. But this is just a really long and somewhat boring advertisement for the American Repertory Theater there in Cambridge. There are some really stellar performances, though, some good singing. For instance, a spellbinding moment when Brianna Marie Parham croons Summertime from the Gershwins Porgy and Bess. According to Mr. Israel, the audience is hushed during her performance. And then there's also a raucous number starring MJ Rodriguez, who shows us how to really bust a move. Kathleen Stone has a great review up about uh, something about called Among Women. It's at the Bowdoin College Museum of Art in Brunswick, Maine. And the show tells the story of women through portraits that span a little more than 200 years. So if you like portraiture, if you like stories about female perspectives through visual art, check out the Among Women Exhibit at the Bowdoin College of Museum of Museum of Art in Brunswick, Maine. You can see that through the spring of next year. Boston Philharmonic is doing their celebration holiday season nonsense. Uh truly great performance that suited the BPO's season long dual commemorations. They play uh Gnostera, Ravel, Strauss. I don't really like Strauss, but whatever. If you're into that.
1: I like Strauss. Some cool waltzes.
0: Which Strauss are we talking about here? We're talking about these Strauss, right? Richard, right? Uh, maybe we should find out. I
1: think Richard Strauss. Is the Blue Danube. Bum, 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 bum. I'm just going to sing a cappella for this entire podcast, ladies Please and gentlemen. Do. Da, 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 da da. That was a big deal, actually, in Vienna at the time, um, because he was Jewish, and he was also one of the best composers they had around, and uh, turn-of-the-century Vienna wasn't always necessarily hospitable to jews and so they had to kind of fake it they they had to like pretend that he was converted to catholicism i think in order to allow him to continue to perform and he had to tone down some of the um things he he created stefan zweig writes a lot about it in the world of yesterday beautiful memoir about growing up in vienna turn of the century
0: so the guy that wrote the uh book about chess
1: yep the chess story yeah 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 stefan zweig i'm a big fan of actually
0: he's good i like him he's a major influence on the Grand Budapest Budapest Hotel,
1: right? Because it's that sense of like old Europe, and um, kind of the grandness and the uh, sophistication, but of course with fascism coming around the bend, and the end of that cafe society with really witty intellectuals and erudition and and beautiful paintings and beautiful buildings,
0: romantics from another era. Yeah, yeah. And how that's all crumbling. And Stefan Zweig had to see that right before his eyes. And then of course the communism hmm Which mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why everybody thinks was bad, but <laughs> <laughs> I doubt I doubt the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra is playing the blue Danube though, which is like Is that not it? That's uh no. Uh you can get um Held.
1: Okay. HELD. By the way, Jonathan Blumhofer? Did you hear the one reviewing that?
0: Oh yeah, Uh, it's it's Jonathan Blumhoffer's review. Let's give a shout out to Jonathan Blumhoffer. Jonathan Blumhoffer, you are covering the classical music scene like it's nobody's business.
1: Like a boss. I mean, I don't know a lot of classical music as much as I'd like at any rate, and I really like what I know of it, and every now and again I hear stuff that just totally knocks my socks off. And so, even though I'm kind of a classical music newbie, uh, I still want to find out about new stuff, and I I really want to find out what's happening now because i don't just want it to be all like oh yeah beethoven and bach it's sort of like with no. jazz like J-
0: uh, ginastera's i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that name right he this piece is from 1953 so like they are doing modern music right and modern classical music not even the avant-garde aggressive stuff but just it's stuff. modern classical music a thing mm-hmm. oh okay. yeah
1: yeah it's more of a genre but it's being done now i think so it's like symphonies <laughs> written you know two or three years ago or something he did a magnificent series Blumhofer did on um contemporary classical music that was just really interesting i heard a lot of cool stuff from composers i'd never heard of before i mean obviously people in that community would have known them but people i'd never heard of and i heard some really fun things that he was able to review and to talk about and apparently i mean most of his reviews are pretty positive so it sounds like boston's got a lot of classical juice right now so i'd really encourage people to check that out there's a lot of really fun stuff happening in our city and also just to read it anyway Because you get exposed to these people uh, There's one composer, Samuel Adams The, <laughs> the, <laughs> <It's>
0: the drunk <laughs> the guy The right?
1: intoxicating name yeah. of Samuel Adams And uh, I, read, I read That was
0: cheap, that was lazy Intoxicating read. name of Samuel Adams? No, just the two of us Just going straight for Sam Adams
1: By the way, this podcast is all about Going for the cheapest, laziest punchline possible But so anyway, shout out to John, uh, to Jonathan Blumhofer for, for continually bringing that classical thunder We salute you
0: Jane Fonda is on television. That was written by some schmuck <laughs> named, named Matt. Hansen. If I ever find him, I'm gonna hunt him down and kill him. Oh man, I I, I, I can't I can't wait till I see that guy in the street. Mm-hmm. He owes me like fourteen dollars
1: still. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, Jane Fonda has. There's a new documentary about her out on um, HBO. Um, and I don't know. I think we could talk about Jane Fonda for a minute or two. It's interesting for people like us because we're younger, and Jane Fonda isn't necessarily the household name she was back in the '60s and '70s. And so we kind of think of her, if we think of her, as sort of like a, I don't know, 70s actress that kind of time has passed her by, a workout guru. And in a lot of ways, you kind of forget that all that celebrity bashing and all that hating on celebrity activists is in many ways kind of gravitates towards her. That's where a lot of that started, or at least continued. And so she caught a lot of flag for her for her anti-war activism. And there's a documentary that talks about her life in in each of the segments of it.
0: Yeah, a lot of it is shut up and just be Barbarella. We right. Don't, we don't want to know what you have to say about anything.
1: Right. You're hot. Go be hot. Don't actually challenge the way I'm thinking about anything like this.
0: But she and did you're too also too bien.
1: She did. I love that movie. It's a great film. Yeah. By Jean-Luc Godard, right after his "I Hate the Bourgeoisie" full-time phase <laughs> and getting back into making movies that made some okay. sense. And she was also Hollywood royalty. I mean, you know, Henry Fonda, you couldn't get a more sort of um, uh, iconic figure of rugged American masculinity in a lot of ways. So to be Henry Fonda's daughter is to be the daughter of an American treasure in a lot of people's minds. And so for for her to start hanging out with the Black Panthers and to start criticizing Vietnam openly and to start criticizing women's roles in pictures and to criticize gender roles and sexual mores. Henry Fonda himself told her at one point, if I ever find out that you've turned communist, I'm, I'll turn you in myself. I'm going to get you. I'm going to put Ooh. you in prison. Yeah. And Fonda was in no, nobody's idea of a cold warrior. He was an FDR Democrat all the way. And so him for him to see his daughter starting hanging out with all these hairy, doped up freaks, he had it. And so you see Jane Fonda in a lot of ways as being someone who... I guess you could argue is is um,
0: pioneering, trailblazing, uh,
1: non non um, compromising.
0: It's arguable that her criticisms as Hanoi Jane, right, were much more valid than than most of the celebrity stuff that goes on today.
1: That's a good point too.
0: I think a lot of it is posturing. Hollywood has turned into such a a, a wretched cesspit that no matter who they come out against, it's it's always safe. Safe, yeah, to some yeah. degree. I mean it's less safe, I guess, for something like Clint Eastwood. But he's a
1: Well it's a safe topic. And, yeah. and, and and like there's always a couple of people, like say Jane Fonda, who is who are pioneering and actually principled and are are sacrificing a certain risking a certain amount to speak up. I mean Jane Fonda got death threats, she um was you know, her, her career suffered from it, her dad's threatened to turn her in she actually but she had she stuck to her guns and in some ways that was maybe negative to the anti-war cause because it made it sound like it was limousine liberalism at its peak and it's most irritating but i think nowadays when celebrities speak out it's always these sort of pet causes that you know they don't really care about um it's things that they're that you can just see that they're 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 they're, um what do you call it uh not their journalist they're um publicist publicist. yeah things that their publicist encourage them to start telling johnny carson that they care about you know and so having the pet cause is now like a kind of a mark of status symbol in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely fashionable to be part of the political discourse because that's what gets a lot of the clicks and gets people noticed. But like... Helps you build your brand. It's, it's dumber for somebody like Roseanne now to be all... Up in arms about it? Up in arms about it when, you know... She's completely abandoned. She, she basically did like what what Democrats did in the nineties, right? Which is uh, abandon your liberal FDR Democrat type roots and mm-hmm. say, well, we're just going to go after the financial markets and uh, we're the party of the rich people now. But Kim Kardashian got somebody out of prison, you know, mm-hmm. and and sh- she did more probably because Donald Trump is a fucking pervert weirdo that just wanted like Kim Kardashian to be in the room with her yep. or to be in the room with him, yep. but. She's done more than like, and also the branding sense—that sense of like I want to look cool for the kids, so I'll have somebody that's cool for the kids at at the White House. Look, if it if it has anything to do with even like bringing a tiny amount of attention to prison reform, which it's not going to because that's not on the agenda right oh, now. Oh, it is apparently. They're working on a on a bill. Oh, is it really? That's what I heard. Well, thank thank God for Kim yeah. Kardashian.
1: Right. Well, it's that sense of like, well, that's the thing, too, about politics, right? About, about celebrity politics. Everybody hates celebrities. Everybody hates the beautiful people talking about politics until it's their beautiful person talking about their issue. So, like, the right-wingers can't stand it when Jane Fonda or whoever speaks, up, speaks out. But when Clint Eastwood has something he wants to say, they fall all over themselves to support Clint Eastwood. He, he pulled up, like, a full Beckett play. Yes. <laughs>
2: a Beckett play as
1: performed by Grandpa Simpson. Right. At the Republican National Convention, for Christ's sake. Right. I mean, not like some weirdo little podcast in the middle of nowhere like look, us.
0: Look, talking to an empty chair Yeah, is basically what I feel like I'm doing right Pretty much.
1: More like an empty suit, honestly. <laughs> uh, um and, you know, and that was also, la- apparently Mitt Romney's staff, the guy who was running Mitt Romney's campaign, vomited after, Mitt cr- after Eastwood started it up. He literally ran over to a wastebasket and just tossed <laughs> his cookies. It was just why, who gave what, who gave him the, the clearance. So it's that it's that opportunistic quality of like, well, we shouldn't let celebrities get in politics. Oh, well, you know, but Dirty Harry can say what he wants. We also have a celebrity president, so... Very much so, and it's that's a great point. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is kind of the 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 apex of that celebrity po- politicizing, as if he has any idea about anything in the world. Not quite the famous crooner, right? Right, not quite Johnny Gentle, but almost there. Right. right. Well, the thing about Johnny Gentle is that he's very OCD, which I guess Trump is too. He's obsessed with cleanliness. <laughs> he is. He he literally will say things like "shit" in like a terrified <laughs> voice during his speeches and stuff. He's also the only president ever to do a kick, a kick, uh, a mic mic stand kick. Trump's also
0: kind of a germaphobe, though, isn't he? He is a total germaphobe, yeah.
1: apparently. Yeah, but it's that sense of like he's a celebrity and he's a celebrity for being a rich guy, which in many people's minds is all you need to do to prove right. that you're a competent human being but so it's interesting also and this is where i I talk about this with um, jane fonda a bit uh, about jane fonda is that so in the 60s 70s she really is walking the walk she's married to um hayden tom hayden sds not the compromise second draft of the part here on stage, right and so and they really were i mean they you know they 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 were walking the walk their son's like look i learned how to be potty trained in war zones so good for her i really applaud her for that but what's interesting is, is that Tom Hayden is a very well-respected guy. He's written a lot of books, whatever. She's the breadwinner because of her workout tapes. And that's totally selfless on her. I don't, I don't judge her on that at all. She gave the money to the, to the radical organizations they were affiliated with. She did that to help people out. Good on Jane for that. I just think it's really funny. How you know the like radical studious uh, activist intellectual person still grinds away grinds it out writing books that ten people will read? Jane Fonda teaching women to get rid of cellulite, New York Times bestseller, right? Um, just creates the home video market. That the vanities and the insecurities of the middle class are actually where you strike gold when you're even when you're coming at it from a radical perspective is quite a, quite an interesting little paradox there. And so that's great. I, I don't fault her for that. But I do think it's a little interesting, and I say this in the review, that even after she's doing all this, uh, all the, the workout tapes and making lots of money off of it, which is definitely something like you would find an in infinite chest, even after all that, it sound, that is where the concept of public personal branding really starts to kick off because it's not just a workout tape. And it's not just a way to make some money for radical groups. It's also a way for her to ch- reinvent herself in the public mind. Then you have those soft focus interviews on, 20, on 2020 with Barbara Walters or whatever. And they're like, do you regret what you said in the 60s? And she becomes this sort of famous for being famous at that, at that point, which is interesting. And then in the 90s, when she starts marrying Ted Turner, it's all about celebrity as political statement. So you can agree with it, disagree with it, whatever. It's just that's where that trend, in some ways, started to to flow. So it's funny how in the '60s and '70s the political is personal in the sense that I don't care if my dad yells at me, and my you know movie star icon father tells me he'll put me in jail for hanging out with the Black Panthers. That's I respect that. And then 20 decades later, it's oh no, we're going to go to the party with the that will have the UN ambassador and Henry Kissinger and. You know novelists and and Gore Vidal will be there And that'll be our way of Having this kind of national international influence So then when she's narrating her life In the documentary done by HBO At times And I only say she walks the line on this I'm not trying to accuse her of it wholesale But at times it sure sounds like Her narrating her own life back to us Becomes in some ways A branding exercise It's her kind of curating her sense Of her personal history for our consumption. So that was that. that I, once I started thinking about that. And she's how she's kind of airbrushing a lot of her. Um, her life. Uh, I was a little bit dubious about it. And I finished the review by. With what I literally did. Which is to turn. Which is after watching the film. I turned to the person sitting next to me. Who is an accomplished. Uh, strong independent woman. And I said. I don't know. Do you think Jane Fonda's is a role model. For women. Right. Is she like a good feminist hero. And she replied, absolutely, with no hesitation. So, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, that's how to end that discussion from my, from my piece. You know, I'm a, I'm, a man, I'm a guy. I shouldn't be telling uh, women what they, who they should admire and who they shouldn't. And you know what? If someone decides that Jane Fonda's life is actually a really good example of a strong woman who took her life uh, in her own hands and, and, and chose her own destiny and chose her own adventure, then more power to you.
0: You heard it here, folks. First, lean in. Michael Moore has a new film out called uh, Fahrenheit 11.9, yep. which is the uh, the date of uh, Trump's election. And he was recently talking to uh, Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept mm-hmm. at a special screening of his film along with uh, Night at the Garden, I think it is, which is about an American fascist rally at Madison Square Garden in the 30s. Oh, okay. And Michael Moore, in conversation with Jeremy Scahill, says, you know, it's gotten to the point where we should just do what they did and say, screw it. You know, the Democrats are the smart people party, and we need some kind of stopgap here. Who's somebody that everybody likes? And the crowd starts shouting things out. Beto O'Rourke. He's like, yeah, fine. Beto O'Rourke. Run him. Oprah. Oprah. Everybody loves Oprah. Run Oprah. Who cares at this point? It's all about winning. And I I see where he's coming from. Michael Moore said that? Michael Moore said that. I this. believe Michael Moore said that. And, and, and I see where he's coming from, but I'm also like, yeah. no, this is, this is a bad way to go because I think... I agree with that. One I of do. the things that the Democrats have done very well is have both a lot of success at doing the Republican playbook. Look at the Clinton years. That's essentially what his MO was. And then that's what the Obama administration ended up turning into. That's not what he ran as. Same with Clinton. And then... They also have a lot of failure at doing the the Republican MO, particularly in Congress. If the Democrats try to play tough, then they're seen as you know these ultimate anti-freedom, anti-democracy type folks. If the Republicans play play tough, then the Democrats roll over. So I see where it's coming from, though, where he says just win, and because this is kind of like a hail mary kind of moment, I suppose, in American politics, where you either. Can agree that. And, and and I can I, I can get down with that to some degree, but I'm a little bit surprised. And when I was listening to this interview, Michael Moore just sounds so exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I, I think back to the end of when he did Fahrenheit 9-11. And the last line of the film, I think, is, I hope you can join me after you watch this film in some sort of struggle because I'm getting really tired and I can't do it on my own. And that was 10 years ago. And now here we are, and he's made another film. And his point is, in in, in the interview, he says, look, they're going to keep giving me money to make these movies if they continue to show that they don't do anything. And so he says, who cares at this point? Just get somebody in that can win and beat the ultimate bad people, which is kind of like a really kind of like hyperbolic version of the Democratic strategy anyway. Vote for me because I'm not the Republican. Vote for me because we're the good guys. And... I got really sad when I heard that because I do feel like almost feel like Michael Moore is kind of giving up a little bit or he's he's reached a point where he's given up on the idea that his art can do anything political or the purposes of the, the reason why he's been making these films about gun control, about healthcare, care, about capitalism, about the financial crisis, about a political system. That because the people that give him the money to make the movies know that they're not going to do anything because we're not going to leave the theater in some Brechtian uprising because we've seen this thing, they're just going to keep letting him make his movies. I think that also undercuts his own argument. If the celebrity from the quote unquote good side is allowed to win, they must be allowed to win because it's not going to change anything.
2: There once was a hole. There once was a hole. I said there was a hole. I said there was a hole. The prettiest little hole. The prettiest little hole that you ever did see. That you ever did see. Now the hole in the ground and the green grass grows all around and round. The green grass grows all around. And in that hole. And in that hole, there was some dirt. There was some dirt. The richest dirt. The richest dirt that you ever did see. That you ever did see. Now the dirt in the hole, in the hole. and the hole in the ground. And the grow grass around and around. green grass grows all around and round. The green grass grows all around. And in that dirt. And in that dirt, there was some Roots, there was some roots, the prettiest little roots, the prettiest little roots that you ever did see, that you ever did see. Now the roots and the dirt and the dirt in the hole and the hole in the ground, and the green grass grows all around and around, the green grass grows all around, and on those roots and on those roots, that grew a little tree, there grew a little tree, the prettiest little tree, the prettiest little tree that you ever did see, that you ever did see. Now the tree on the roots and the roots in the dirt and the dirt in the hole and the hole in the ground, and the green grass grows all around and around, the green grass grows all around, and on that tree. And on that tree, there was a little limb. There was a little limb. The prettiest little limb. The prettiest little limb that you ever did see. That you ever did see. Now the limb on the tree and the tree on the roots and the roots and the dirt and the dirt in the hole and the hole in the ground. And the green grass grows all around and round. The green grass grows all around. And on that limb, and on that limb, there was a little nest. There was a little nest. The prettiest little nest. The prettiest little nest that you ever did see. That you ever did see. Now the nest on the limb and the limb on the tree and the tree on the roots and the roots in the dirt and the dirt in the hole and the hole. In the ground, and the green grass grows all around and around. The green grass grows all around, and in that nest, and in that nest, there was a little egg, there was a little egg, the prettiest little egg, the prettiest little egg that you ever did see, that you ever did see. Now the egg in the nest, and the nest on the limb, and the limb on the tree, and the tree on the roots, and the roots in the dirt, and the dirt in the hole, and the hole in the ground, and the green grass grows all around and around. Green grass grows all around, and in that egg, and in that egg, there was a little boy, there was a little boy, the prettiest little boy, the prettiest little boy that you ever did see. you ever did see. Now, the bird and the egg and the egg and the nest and the nest on the limb and the limb on the tree and the tree on the roots and the roots in the dirt and the dirt and the hole and the hole in the ground. The green grass grows all around and round. The green grass grows all around on that bird, and on that bird, there was some feather, some feather, prettiest little feather, prettiest little feather that you ever did see. That you ever did see. The feathers on the bird and the bird and the egg and the egg and the nest and the nest on the limb and the limb on the tree and the tree on the roots and the roots and the dirt and the dirt and the hole and the hole and the ground and the green grass grows on round and round. The green grass grows all around.
0: James Wood wrote a novel. You probably. Don't necessarily think of him as a novelist. Right. James Wood is the book critic of The New Yorker, and he teaches uh, the practice of literary criticism at Harvard. You open your uh, piece, it's both a review of the novel Upstate, and it's also a conversation with James Wood, so check a, that out on the Arts Fuse. But you you talk about how, in his criticism, he talks about, about the art of deep noticing, which, quote, "...represent those moments in a story where form is outlived, cancelled, evaded, nothing less than bits of life sticking out of the frieze of form." imploring us to touch them. End quote. Now I like that one because I have thought a lot about mimesis and right. and and the literary form.
1: Representing reality, being the mirror to nature.
0: Which the, the more I thought about it back when I was getting involved in like Hetty Theory and the less I, I thought realistic fiction or real sorry, realist fiction was able to do that. To me realist fiction is the most removed from any sort of mimetic success or achievement. And I was writing a lot about Joyce when I was doing this. And so I think that, yes, that's like the psychological novel and you're supposed to be have this interiority that represents thought, which is essentially experience because we experience things in we, both sensually but also uh, psychologically, that I thought that abstraction in literary art is actually able to represent reality sometimes better than realist fiction. Realist right. fiction is is a lie to itself sometimes where we say, I'm going to try to write it down exactly as things happen, but that's not how we experience stuff. Right. We experience things in confusion. We experience things, yes, in time and temporarily, but we remember things awkwardly. Memory is a tricky thing. We have mismatched uh, sometimes reactions to actual physical stimulus or things around us. Mm-hmm. We can trick ourselves we have mental illness we have all kinds of things that can screw with the way that we actually perceive and experience life and so to me literature is not about representing like a like a mirror Mm -hmm. where it's a little bit off but in the way that it's a little bit off makes it more lifelike Mm. verisimilitude is not necessarily being able to describe something perfectly verisimilitude or is is in a more mimetic sense is being able to describe something in a way that allows you to see it for what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talked about that, and and in the novel, there's... I think that's a really interesting insight, because in the novel, there's... It's basically just a family story about a father from England coming back to visit his daughters, and one of them's going through kind of an emotional crisis, because she's had some relationship trouble. And one of them is a very go-getting, high-powered music executive. The other's kind of a gloomy philosophy professor. She lives upstate. And so he goes up to kind of get in touch with her again and one thing that really struck me about the book that i really liked actually was that in many ways it's a realist story it's a family drama it's sort of a a, a subtle subtly observed story about people in a very specific place and, and a family all of which is conventionally realistic terms right for realistic dimensions but what i thought was interesting was that there are several scenes where conversations are struck up with strangers for example and there's a scene where the uh, the, character, the the character, father character is talking to a woman at a bar in a hotel and you kind of think something's going to happen. It seems like it's going to lead somewhere. All the narratives that we're used to tell us that no side character comes in without having a purpose, for example. And the the conversation just kind of dissolves in this wonderfully realistic way. There's tons of times where you talk to a random person for a few minutes and then it just ends like that. Um, whether
0: or not the conversation is meaningful or not
1: exactly or relevant to the plot unquote.
0: this is why i love the uh the usa trilogy from uh dos pasos me too you had this character that yeah. you followed along some somewhat you know exciting and you know adventurous kind of narrative for a, a couple of chapters or he would show up every once in a while right and then he'd be gone on page 100 and you'll get to page 350 and he's never come back again. Right. That's what life that's what happens in life. Right. That's and this how is life the great is. big expanse of America. You know, this you know, people come in and out of people's lives. I just gestured really large there. Yeah, There's a beautifully <laughs> yeah. grand gesture. It was this is America from here to the yeah. rest of the table. Right. To the to the to the to the padded walls. From padded wall to padded <laughs> wall.
1: We're actually doing the entire podcast within a padded within a, a room of padded walls. Right.
0: Somerville Media Center is is also where we get our therapy. <laughs> But right. that's what happens. Yeah, that's know? how
1: life is. We don't ha- It doesn't follow a plot. It doesn't follow a prearranged set of coordinates, right? It's may- these fizzling moments. Yes. And and I find that in a way kind of paradoxically more realistic than anything because that's actually how we experience our lives. There's a part where the main character, Alan, is uh, driving in upstate New York, which he's kind of un- unfamiliar with, and it's these very kind of snowy, icy streets. It's in the wintertime. And so he he has what, you assume is about to be a car accident. He skids. He's trying to hit the. He's he's trying to change the the music on the radio, but he, he does misses the the wheel and he misses the turn. And you, it, it's kind of a car accident that isn't really a car accident. He doesn't get hurt. The car doesn't get hurt. he doesn't hurt anybody else. But for a few minutes, he loses control, and then he fixes himself and and he he, he goes on. But it's those little moments where you don't really know what's going to actually happen one minute to the next. And that felt really realistic. That felt like real re- realism. I tried to um, coin a little term, elliptical realism, in the review,
0: to talk about what that is. Wait, hang on, hang on. I got a sound here for that.
1: So that's the sound of elliptical realism. It's just the sense that, like, you're trying to capture th- that the quality of real life in all of its ephemeral qualities right that you observe something and then it disappears you have a conversation with someone it doesn't lead anywhere you lose control in a car but it's not a car crash it's those little moments that are real because they're accurate it's not aliens coming down it's not people turning into dragons or something it's real life it's just real life without the benefit of well-structured highly detailed plot which is our life so it's that sense that of of time passing uh, and of, of of things not having easy, neat plot resolutions.
0: He references a little bit of a quote here from, or a little bit of a phrase from Saul Bellow. Mm-hmm. Says, it's a wonderful phrase where he's talking at Lake Michigan, which is so enormous it's like a sea. And Wood says the phrase is, quote, the blue teeter of it. Yeah, When, you know, you don't really know what that means. Yeah. It's just the 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 immensity of it causes some kind of dislocation, some kind of uh, uh, like inner ear problem, like a little imbalance. Yeah, and that's what fiction does. Sure, uh, it's it's being able to. This is why I think poetry is probably like the more uh, the, the the more the superior form here. Sure, but
1: because it's a little bit more ethereal.
0: Yeah, and. But just something like the blue teeter of it, whether or not that's actually the line or whatever. It also, is. that's, when a, that's you re- the phrase yeah, he brought yeah. up. Yeah. But also, when you read this interview, you have to believe that James Wood actually talks like this, like <laughs> in paragraphs and full sentences with complete ideas. I don't know how much you know editing you did, so we won't b- we won't ruin the magic. I had to cut a bunch <laughs> of yeah. stuff. We won't yeah. we won't ruin the magic. Maybe there's a, yeah. uh, a future uh, un- uh, unedited version of the interview coming down the pipe somewhere. We've got the tape of it. Yeah, <laughs> but. But uh, it's 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 a remarkable interview. It's probably one of the better ones that's actually been on The Fuse. Uh, check that one out.
1: Yeah, when you talk about the Blue Teeter, I was asking him about how he's a critic. He's known for writing criticism, but now he's venturing out into writing fiction himself. And so he kept, he kept kind of referring it, to it as kind of a beautiful image, going into open water.
0: There's some moment where you just have to push out into that open water, where it would seem that nothing very much can help you. Sure, you have your reading, what you must have learned about life, about people. Of course, that helps, but in the end, I sometimes wonder whether writing fiction, when you're out in the middle of the water, doesn't have something to do with a mysterious level of self-confidence and authority. It's akin, say, to the confidence and authority that a brilliant politician or an actor has. Some people are able to find it, to locate it, and others don't. It's a nice little quote. He's also kind of like patting himself on the back there, but you know...
1: (laughs) Well, he says that, well, I wanted to include a little bit later, because he did say this when I was talking to him, and I wanted to include it because he, he is, well, you'd be pat, he'd be patting himself on the back if he said, I've got it, but he says in he the interview, says he, he says, it. I don't really know if I have that. Right. He talks about door-to-door salesmen. Some people can just do that, just knock on a door and just sell you a vacuum cleaner. And he's like, I don't really feel like I necessarily have that, you know. And and what was interesting to me was to hear that as his description of what he thinks it takes to really be able to pull fiction off. And I- in a way, it's almost um, kind of delightfully wicked because it's like someone yes. who can sell you their 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 line of bullshit.
0: You have to. He, he's very critical of writers like David Foster Wallace, and a lot of people would say that he's self-indulgent. Just to, to yeah. a big degree, but explaining and then over-explaining. Right. He talks over-explaining. about uh, fiction of of uh, the implication implication over the fiction of explication. And yeah, I happen to think that David Foster Wallace's over-explication is part of what makes him great. I agree with that because I'm a, I'm a jerk, I guess. <laughs> but
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's like reality needs to be over-explained because right. it's gotten so insane. Right.
0: But at the same time, what he's really actually saying is indulge yourself when you're writing you know you have to have that ability to be a little bit seductively wicked a little bit even towards yourself yeah whether okay. or not you're selling a vacuum cleaner or if you're selling somebody the idea that you've deeply observed or deeply felt life in some way
1: yeah and that that sense of you can commit to your story and you can you can commit to the the story that you're trying to put over absolutely absolutely and he himself doesn't say that he necessarily always feels that way. But it was interesting in the sense that it's sort of delightfully wicked. And it's also um, kind of encouraging because, really, I mean, I don't know. Like, anybody can sell something as long as they believe in what they're selling,
0: I think. I used to do door to door stuff, and I yeah. didn't believe in it.
1: But. I did, too. And if you, <laughs> I didn't believe in it either. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. But <laughs>
0: What's that like to live deliciously? Yes,
1: <laughs> yes, oh yes! <laughs> buy this, tr- buy this thing from me. Trust me, it'll work. Um, but it's that sense that like anybody can actually do that because I don't know. People believe in all kinds of stuff, right? Like you can, you can not necessarily convince someone in the sense of like make them buy what you're selling. But if you believe in an in, in an idea or an image or a story that you have, then all you need to do is to try to summon up your commitment to that story as best you can. And then that then ideally, you know, your ability to write convincing fiction about it will follow. And I think that's kind of a cool democratic mentality. It's not that only the genius who has a once-in-a-lifetime talent and can only see things that they can see is able to write fiction. You have to learn how to do it. It's a trade, it's a craft, it's a skill, but at the same time, it's also something that like is possible because for a lot of times myself and he, he felt this way too when you've read a lot you get kind of intimidated because you hold your you hold this stuff to a really high standard and you feel like gee whiz I can't compare to somebody like Wallace or Joyce or um, T.S. Eliot or, or Shakespeare you know but to say okay well then this is my story and this is my world of fiction these are my details this is my deep noticing it's very empowering I think I, I took that I took a, a positive sense away from that
0: We're gonna take a quick break.
3: Oh oh long. Well I wonder will I ever get back home? Hey. hey. Oh long Well it must have been the devil that fooled me here. One more down than I. Hey, oh Lord. Thought if I ever get back home, i never do wrong. Well, if I can just make it home, I won't do wrong no more. But I won't do wrong no more. Mm-hmm. Lord, I left me willing to baby in the courthouse crying. Daddy, please don't go. Lord, I'll be back home. Mm-hmm. Well. Lord, I'll be home one day for long Oh, oh, oh. just wait for me Mm -hmm. Lord, I've been here rolling But it stayed so long Lord, I'm all done and I, my friend, won't come and see, Lord, what's done happen to me. Mm-hmm. Lord, I've got to listen to what my dear old mother said. Hey Boy she dead and gone. Oh, she dead and gone. Ooh, what I'm gonna do now.
0: So we're gonna talk now about a review of an absolutely amazing CD. An album that's been released by American artist, uh, musician Lonnie Holly. It's album Myth, M-I-T-H. And it's written by a new critic for the Arts Fuse, a good friend of ours, Jeremy Ray Jewell. I was absolutely blown away by this album. I found it to be utterly compelling.
1: It's a really powerful piece of music.
0: And Holly is kind of like a 21st century Gil Scott Heron. That's a good way to put it, yeah. He's been compared to him. I think there's a lot of actually uh, Pharaoh Sanders, some of the avant-garde jazz artists uh, that you can definitely hear in this. But Lonnie Holly is like really particular and unique in that he's completely self-taught. He's right. got an amazing personal history. Yeah. Like the dude basically was raised in a carnival, <laughs> right. essentially,
1: you know. Yeah. One of 25 children. 27.
0: He was the seventh of 27. Right. His mom gives him away to a burlesque dancer who then never gives him back, takes him around living in, you know, the burlesque life, and then ends up at a whiskey house where the- This uh, is all the
1: Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama Yes, he's from,
0: he's from Birmingham, yeah. So, and then he ends up at a whiskey house, and then the burlesque dancer, according to his own story, uh, basically sells him or trades him for a bottle of whiskey. Right. And he lived his life absorbing the sights, sounds, feels, smells, you know, the- fast paced, sensuous life of, you know, a fairgrounds, but also at these fairgrounds, he saw all the movies as well. And so he was being just like overloaded and bombarded with this very unique kind of both mass American culture, popular sort of American entertainment and rural and areas, the the the, the county fair, or the state fair or whatever. In addition to, you know, the, the, the mass media of, of cinema and whatever sounds he was uh, absorbing. Uh, he didn't start out as an artist. He ended up becoming an artist, I think, around the age of 29. The first piece of art he actually made... Uh, They're kind of d- like mobiles. Yeah, he does a lot of folk art that's been featured prominently in some, some, very intre- uh, some place like the American Folk Art Museum, which you can go to in New York, and uh, a few other places that Jeremy mentions in his review. The first pieces of art that he makes are actually tombstones or headstones for right. his sister's children. Right. So he carved that's them the out blues. of sandstone. And that's when he decides to keep making things. So it's not until he's 29 years old does he decide that he's going to start making things. And so Jeremy's review is very good and ties him into a lot of folk traditions. And Jeremy doesn't actually think that this is avant-garde because I think avant-garde has an idea of coming out of an accepted sort of milieu and then pushing the boundaries of that. Jeremy wants to sort of tie what Lonnie Holly does back to the impetus that's behind something like a work song or a chain gang song, and thematically that's very appropriate because much of Lonnie Holly's work actually does have the kind of aesthetic feel of the kinds of things that you would hear on an Alan Lomax field recording yep. of an Alabama chain gang or a Mississippi chain gang.
1: Yeah, mixed with that sort of like uh, that sort of um, free jazz feeling.
0: Yes, there's certainly there's certainly uh, uh, I think it's maybe that that searching quality that free yeah. jazz has. That this also has there's it's reaching for something it's reaching for something that's beyond comprehension but is completely born from experience and so Lonnie Holly is very much concerned with the deprivation of black American life but also the infinite expansive possibilities that every human soul has right to to, to ponder and to speculate and check it out. It's Myth, M I T H, by Lonnie Holly. And uh, we're going to listen a little bit and read from Jeremy Ray Jewell's review of Lonnie Holly's CD Myth from the record label Dust to Digital. Lonnie Holly is a folk dynamo in his native Birmingham, Alabama. He represents the eccentric southerner, the defiant personality whose timelessness and will to survive awes us. In Myth, his third album, Holly invites us to assume that position ourselves. The tone of the album is floating, but to a purpose. Holly is not unmooring us for the sake of avant garde sound. He is unmooring us so that we may float on our backs with him, spectating and speculating on the universal mysteries behind our commonplace cruelties and injustices.
3: Ship after ship, after ship. Oh, ship land. Yeah. Standing in wonder, standing there. in the capture of my body to take me somewhere let drop off oh, let's drop off change is back Down
2: in the, down into darkness.
0: the techniques at play in this album have been fine-tuned. Holly had become recognized as a visual artist some 30 years before he turned his attention to music, beginning with ca- carving his sister's children's tombstones for want of a professional engraver. Lonnie started with Sandstone Sculptures. Expanding from that, he began collecting and repurposing found objects. His work has been displayed at the White House, the Smithsonian, the American Folk Art Museum, Atlanta's High Museum of Art, and Birmingham's International Airport and Museum of Art. Yet prior to his visual art, there was the man himself. He may as well be a repurposed object in one of his own collages. His life story is that of a castaway born into Jim Crow segregation, raised by a burlesque dancer, created for a bottle of whiskey, near-fatally hit by a car, and more. For Holly, life itself no doubt resonates, with an imperative to pick up the discarded and revive it in altered contexts. Just as in his life and his visual art, Holly's music works with found circumstances and found conditions. His vocals have been described as a cross between Leadbelly and Marvin Gaye, but one might do better to compare them to a rough Otis Taylor or R.L. Burnside. Indeed, the voices of Birmingham locals Piney Brown and Adolphus Bell could be compared to Holly's, forged as they all were in the Black Belt musical culture of central Alabama, where the southern Appalachians drop off into the fertile Gulf Coast plains. It is not a coincidence that Holly's label to digital specializes in archival style folk releases holly's voice is at once his own and rooted in his environments its historical residences
3: are deep Men, women, he to. and women the
2: oh, what they gonna do what they gonna do
0: The vocals hover above sparse musical accompaniments without any recognizable song structures. In some way they resemble a work song in formation, grasping outward for a new rhythm to order things. The lyricism of the central track on the album, I snuck off the slave ship, suggests something of this. The singer imagines sneaking off the transatlantic slave ship only to later lament that we are sneaking back onto another kind of slave ship in our age. A fundamental problem of labor and power remains left over, an obstinate object found, and the detritus we thought we left behind. Likewise, I'm a Suspect begins with the damnable hypocrisy of racial injustice in America. The singer declares that he is a suspect in this country. By the middle of the song, however, Holly suggests that beating that drum alone is outweighed by the magnitude of all of our neglected possibilities. I am a dust speck in the universe. When Holly asks us to float this way, we find familiar objects repurposed in new contexts. We are brought closer to the artist and one another, perhaps even closer to the truth. Among other artists performing on the album, the inclusion of Anna and Elizabeth, who are known for their often free-floating, reinvented Appalachian-style singing, is particularly interesting. Like Holly, Anna and Elizabeth represent our moment of folk revival, even restoration. They are not merely standing on top of tradition, like the sampling of a Lomax recording by Moby or Beyonce, or the Avett Brothers, or Old Crow Medicine Show's Skinny Pants Americana. Nor are they among today's purists, such as Frank Fairfield or Blind Boy Paxton. Artists like Holly are demonstrating how a powerful link may be forged between the archives and our lived experiences. In that way, Holly's work lacks any irony in his performative repurposing of the past and present. This is not avant-garde, as in signing one's name to a urinal and calling it a fountain. Or if there is irony, it is a dead serious irony, which we are invited to feel along with the artist. The album is an invitation that bears the mark of an authentic folk project, an attempt to enliven participatory culture. Maybe it is the irony of folklore and myth, Those imaginative transpositions of reality give the album its name, Myth. Maybe his music resonates with the irony of the blues when suspect becomes the dust speck. Cornel West has written, The fundamental irony of American history is that we follow the better angels of our nature when we honestly and compassionately confront the devilish realities we would like to ignore or deny. Holly's work on Myth is the sound of a choir of better angels Whose multi layered voice is hard on the outside and soft on the inside, like so much Alabama clay. His music reminds us that we need only keep our eyes, ears, and hearts open to the found humanity all around us, all so that we may ourselves be found. In
2: fields turn into factories. uh
3: Technology, yeah.
2: Mirror that,
0: that was from Jeremy Ray Jewel's review of Lonnie Holly's new album Myth that's M-I-T-H it's out now please pick up a copy it is truly an astounding album signing off for the Arts Views this has been Matt Hanson and Lucas Spiro we'll see you next time